Hi everyone, I'm Benji and this is the Daily Dose Podcast. In today's conversation, I have Aaron Ashley. He is a colleague of mine with over 10 years of experience in health and wellness. Aaron focuses on the foundations of health to offset the problems we deal with from our modern lifestyle, understanding that movement and nutrition are the basic building blocks of good health. In this episode, we touch on a variety of topics, including the five keystones of health to live a more balanced life, how everyone is in some sort of pain and why everyone deserves to live a pain-free life, why it is more important to understand a person than to understand their disease, how movement changed his life, and why we both feel gratitude for growing up overweight, and so much more. I don't doctor any of the recordings and didn't want to start now, so this week's episode is longer than usual. Aaron is a wealth of knowledge, and I know if you stick it out or, you know, use the skip 15 seconds button sometimes, there is something everyone can learn from this conversation. So without further ado, here's Aaron Ashley. So awesome, Aaron. I, I appreciate you taking the time today. I know like we had just talked about, I know it's been super busy and I appreciate you taking the time. And um, like I had mentioned, we always start out with a little bit of a story on how uh, I met the person that I'm chatting with. And um we, we, we met through work, long story short, but I think the, the thing that's always tied us together is the kind of long, I guess they're long form conversations. I don't remember the last time I had a short form conversation with you, um, just kind of in passing. It's like, hey, what's up? But then we always kind of like talk into this um, deeper mindset. And then this year you and I were speaking and you said that you had been developing this, uh, this program that kind of breaks down um, an overall approach to wellness into five basic, um, I guess, vitals. Like vital signs that that somebody can follow in order to to live and lead a healthy life and that's where my heart is all the time it's how do we live this balanced life where you know we have happiness just not in one area but we have happiness in others and how our emotions play into it so um as i've kind of moved into this more i guess digital realm and this video realm i was like you're a perfect person to bring on and and chat with because you you actually worked in the health and wellness field longer than i have um, but we're both really cut from the same cloth in terms of our values and beliefs. So I'm super excited to, to pick your brain today and, um, and chat with you about some of the things that you're passionate about and some of the things I know I'm passionate about too, and being able to share those experiences with other people in hopes that they can, they can learn it too. So um, why don't we start out, that was a little bit about us together. Why don't we start out a little bit of, with a little bit about you? Um, we, let's, let's start with that kind of your early, your early life. And we'll, we'll work into our time now and, you know, what your work and, and or your personal and professional life has looked like over the last uh, 15 years. And what did it look like kind of in the first 15 years of your life? Well, I, I grew up with mostly just my mom and my sister. My parents got divorced at a young age. For a while, I lived with my grandparents as well. So it was kind of uh, raised by all women. So I kind of think I have more of an empathetic approach to life because of that. Um, I... I Right around kind of junior high age, I, I had some health issues, you know, like I was allergic to everything. I had asthma, I was overweight. So like I had a lot of, I guess, um, just different issues that were kind of creeping into my life. It kind of got into my self-esteem at that point too. You're kind of getting more in your shell. You don't know exactly who you are or what you want to be. And so like, I was kind of a quiet kid growing up for the most part. But um, through that, I think you kind of start to see, uh, how you want to approach other people. You, you, you see their struggles through that empathetic eye. Mm -hmm. So in, in some ways it's been a huge benefit to go through as many issues as I did. I can kind of 
see what everybody else has gone through. I've had the injuries, I've had the, the lifestyle diseases. So it, it was good that way. I, I think um, the major influence on my life at that, that, that time was my grandfather. So he kind of took over that fatherly role mm-hmm. and he was a very delusionally optimistic person. He was the person who was like, we're, we're almost there no matter what we're doing in life. It's just around that corner. You know, he'd always find a reason to be optimistic. So it's kind of like, you know, if you're struggling up a mountain, he'd, you know, look at the trees and tell you, you know, uh, you can tell that we're almost near the top because the trees are starting to level out and we're almost just there. He had no idea what he was talking about, but <laughs> it was always a way just to, to always be optimistic about the future. You're almost there. Everything you want is just around that corner. And he kind of really framed my, my viewpoint on life that way. It's really cool that you mentioned, uh, my, my, I grew up with both my parents and my parents were together and um, in their relationship and other siblings and stuff. But I grew up with uh, two sisters and obviously my mom. And I, I attribute a lot of my, my empathetic, I guess, skills, uh, my, my skills in empathy and compassion and all those kind of things. The, the softer side, I guess, like the feminine side of me, I attribute a lot of it to growing up. Especially when I first started dating, that was a big thing where uh, women would go through their things like their cycle every month, for example, and like I would handle it well and be like, oh, you're so good at handling this. And it's like, well, I grew up with three women and I attribute a lot of it to because like it's a balance of masculine and feminine. And I literally had a split. There were three men in the family and there were three women. So it's funny that you bring that up. It's and it's perfect because it's it's it teaches me everything. You know, as a man, I think intuitively most of the time I'm going to know already like how to act just it's society kind of the societal structures just kind of tell us, you know, what it's yeah. supposed to be. But um, embracing that feminine side, it took me a long time to, to move in to that that feminine energy, I guess. Um, but I grew up with it. And it's and it's so important, especially like if you, for example, if you didn't have a fatherly figure active in your life, it's so regardless of whether it's a male or, or, or female, it's so important to have that one person at a young age to be like, keep going, keep going, keep going, because we're so naive. You know, we just don't yeah. know anything. So we haven't been hurt. And we just talked about trauma. We haven't been hurt or had any trauma or like, reckon, I guess, conscious trauma that we're aware of at that point. So it's, it's so cool that you had a, a fatherly figure, a grandfatherly figure that would, you know, I always think it was when kids fall fall over. I I never like go up and be like, oh my God, are you okay? I laugh, I pick them up, I dust them off and you tap them on the bum and they just keep going. And it's funny that you really talk about that because it's it's so important at a young young age. Well, I I think kids do so well with having their grandparents take an interest in them too. Mm -hmm. I I know that there's like kind of more of an Eastern model of the grandparents raise the children. Yeah. And you, you see that so much. Like, I know that um, there's some retirement homes in North America now that are starting to put like uh, kindergarten type classes in the retirement homes. And then like so one of the one of the people there will basically adopt a kid to help them. And it helps with their health markers. But the kids also get like a huge bump in their developmental stages. So I, I think growing up with grandparents is a huge benefit, especially ones that take such an interest in you and sh- can show you so many different like new experiences in life. It's funny because it's uh, you say it and I'm getting I got like chills down my my leg just you saying it because I had such a close relationship with both sides of my grand both sets of grandparents my mom's and my dad's but then also now as a young adult my oldest sister has now had kids so my my parents are now grandparents and just seeing the fulfillment and the joy that they bring 
my parents, it's so true. And I didn't realize that that's such a cool idea of, of, you know, combining, it's a very Western thing to say, oh, in these uh, old folks, senior style homes or um, assisted care, uh, they're also like introducing these children because it's such a Western thing to think of it that way. But in Eastern mindset, like you said, children are raised by, I wouldn't even say the grandparents, but raised by the family. And yeah. it's something in Western mindset where like, you know, turn 18, move out. Whereas then you look at other cultures and it's like, there's the four generations living under one household. And we can do, we can, I mean, I could talk about like that stuff forever because I think it's directly impacted our health, our, our individual and our communal health is that um, the shamans call it the, the wisdom of shamans and the wisdom of elderly in, the, in a society where we discount elderly. And, yeah. but in actuality, they actually have the most, they have the most experience and wisdom and knowledge that we need to learn from. And that dissociation and that, um, I guess, disjointed relationship that we have in Western mindset, it's, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. It's, it's fully impacted our health growing up at a young age too. Yeah, I, I think children and elderly people and like elderly can obviously be a very wide uh, scope of people. Mm -hmm. Have the most to teach us so children are just so optimistic and so open to learning and so excited about life and then elderly people have that perspective on life because most of it is behind them so they know what to what's important in life and where to focus your time and then us in the middle from you know probably 18 to 50 we have this very one-minded focus and we lose sight of what life is actually about so i do like spending time with young children and elderly people a lot of times just get that perspective shift I did, a, I did a podcast with um, a friend of mine that I grew up with who actually works in assisted living. Um, and so she was at, during the height of COVID, she was actually in a facility that had a breakout. So I thought it was a great opportunity, but the motivation to actually speak with her was the fact that we're both passionate about seniors and elderly and the wisdom of them. And I just, the year and a half that I spent working with them was one of the most fulfilling times that I've ever had. It was extremely grounding like you had mentioned, it was the most, it was so grounding. Cause at that point it's like, there's, there's no shame. Okay. I wouldn't say no shame. I'm, I'm, I'm grouping all of them together. The dominant theme is that there's no shame. They're very transparent. Uh, they're very honest. They're not afraid to speak. And that's what we, I feel like we need more of in our society. Yeah. And we've just kind of casted them aside. So it's really cool to see that, you know, they're here that they had such a strong impact in your life. And it makes a huge difference between you know, in those in those kind of fragile developmental years, those kind of prepubescent into the pubescent years. It's so important to just have somebody that's going to motivate you. You're like, you know, it's okay to be awkward. And it's okay to feel weird about what's going on. It's yeah. it's so important. And otherwise, you just kind of dig a hole and you feel shame and guilt and all those emotions that we shouldn't at that time. Yeah, oh yeah, totally. No, I agree. So why don't we talk a little bit, that's kind of early on life. What do we, why don't we talk about um, 15 to now and kind of what it's looked like as you've kind of, I guess 15 puts you at the beginning of high school. So from high school um, into your work life and, you know, where you're at now. Okay. Well, it was probably right around 15 where I started my kind of newer health journey. So that was the time where you become very self-aware of who you are. You're going through puberty. You're starting to feel what your body is. And I just didn't like where I was at. So that's when I started to get it more into exercise. You know, I bought some at-home workout videos and stuff like that. And I started to lose a couple pounds. I got lucky too. I ended up growing like seven inches in a, in a year. And that helped to spread things out a little bit. But then there was that, just that confidence boost that comes with movement. So I wasn't very, like, I, I was, you know, a little bit naturally athletic, but I didn't play any sports or anything. 
So I didn't have the confidence that comes from that. So just being able to get into more of a fitness world really started to kind of transform who I was. I was still that kind of like chubby, awkward kid for probably up until now still too. But, you know, like it, <laughs> that, that stays with you and that kind of like that, that little bit of shyness and awkwardness kind of doesn't go away. But just getting that, that, that confidence boost and seeing that you can transform your life through effort probably started right around 15. I used to, you know, wake up and walk to the gym every day for half an hour and go, go do my thing that way. But going through high school, I was still kind of like that quiet, awkward. I didn't really enjoy being there that much. Like right around junior high, I kind of started to kind of disconnect with that kind of style of learning. Um, but it, it, was, it was still beneficial to be able to kind of go through that growth period. But then like right after high school, I started getting injured a lot. So I, I, I broke my foot. I broke my ankle. I broke my foot. I broke a rib. Like I just kept getting injured in sports. So it might have come from the fact that I didn't grow up playing sports. So I wasn't as coordinated as I thought I was. But through those injuries, it, it kind of pushed me into having to choose my, 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 my future life goals differently. I, I knew I couldn't work in anything physical because at that time I was in quite a bit of pain. I hadn't gone for any surgeries yet. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew that I had to kind of look towards using my mind more for making a living. And I didn't know exactly where I wanted that to take me. I, I, I didn't even think that I liked working with people. I didn't talk to a lot of people. Like I had a couple of close friends, but that was never in my stratosphere because I was just quiet and shy and everything like that. But through the gym, I, I met a, a couple of people who were working there and they, they were teaching courses. And so they, they suggested that I just take one and, I, I had nothing else to do at the time. So I, I hopped in one of those and it was interesting and it kind of got me excited about learning again, but it wasn't necessarily anything I thought could be a career. Like, you know, when you think of people working in the fitness industry, you think of jocks and, you know, young people doing it to appear like they're cool, but nobody really does it for a career. Nobody really does it long-term, but you know, you're, I was 18, 19. So it seemed like something I could do for a while. And I just had a friend who was working at good life and so she told me to apply and i put my application in there and through all the process i ended up going and meeting um sue williams at candy meadows good life and it was probably the most fortunate event of my adult life i because i think if i was put anywhere else because everywhere in this industry has a lot of people that i don't connect with that i don't admire the way that they think it's very shallow minded very uh aesthetic like oriented and so getting to talk with Sue, she was the first person who ever showed me that this could be a career and it could be a respectable one too. So she moved obviously from more of a physio side, but um, yeah, so she's decided to, I guess, take a chance on me and she hired me. And I started at Good Life when I was 23. And yeah, that, that started my fitness career. And I would say like through Sue's um, mentorship, she definitely changed my viewpoint on what fitness is and what it could be and how it can actually help literally everybody in so many countless ways. And so that's kind of where what started my, my, my training journey, I guess. It's, it's interesting. I mean, you spoke to mentorship and, and mentorship is something that, that we talk a lot about on, on this podcast specifically. And it's, it takes this linear growth and makes it exponential when like when you're able to fall under somebody else who's already walked a similar path and is able to coach you through it it changes the growth your personal growth specifically and then also your professional growth 
it's unbelievable what it can do. And then you start to notice these, these patterns of, you know, you mentioned it's not just a career. It can be this and that. And then all of a sudden that plays into your self-esteem and your self-worth. And that's kind of building up. And then next thing you know, eight years later, you're at, I mean, you have a full client base. You work, I would say, full time. Um, and you built amazing relationships with the clients you have. And they always speak really highly of you. I just, and just watching how you interact with them. It's always, you always have such great relationships um, with your clients. And the biggest thing is you actually care. And that's the big, I think that's the biggest misconception with fitness nowadays is we don't care about the people. We care about what the people look like because that's what the people care about or we, what the people think they care about is that, you yeah. know, I just want to look good. It's like, nah, there's a lot more to this. Like you're not looking good physically because of a lot of things uh, that are, that are going on internally um, or lifestyle things. I, I mean, we're going to talk about it later, but I think a lot of it is internal. And then another thing you spoke to as well was I, I well, you and I, so one of the reasons you and I connect is because I grew up. Um, I always say I grew up a fat kid because that's what I was. And I think there's 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 some humility involved in me saying it that bluntly. Um, I could say I was obese. I don't think that does it. I could say I was overweight. It doesn't do it. I was a fat kid and I was that awkward 15 year old. And it was funny, too, because sports were what pushed me in a better direction. Sports and wanting the affirmation of people around me. Those were the two biggest yeah. things is I wanted to be skinny because I wanted to be accepted because I was never accepted. But that body image at such a young age was kind of developmental years they impacted me. Um, they impacted me. They impacted me so strongly in things like my emotional well-being and my mental health, like um, insecurity, um, feeling awkward and not accepted, like you had mentioned. And it was the biggest confidence boost when I, I you actually went through your growth spurt. I never did. So I was just like, you know, let's, I got to get rid of this fat, you know, get into better shape. Um, but it's funny you mentioned it too. I used to walk to the gym every summer. I'd wake up, I'd, it's like a 15, 20 minute walk. I'd walk there. I'm sorry, I'd actually run there and then walk home. If I was, if I was, if I was gassed, if I felt good, I'd run back home, but it was down the street. So it's really cool to hear. Um, it's really cool to hear the similarities in our story because it's something that I know that we've discussed, but to kind of hear the things that you, you had experienced as well. I think it's, I think it's really important. So what if we, so why don't we talk a little bit about, you know, you, you didn't think that training, training could be a career. And the way I kind of look at it a lot of the time is training is what the, the skill, like the knowledge based stuff, the things that you can add in, that's what it gives you. But I think the intangibles a lot of the time are the empathy that you mentioned, the compassion, the ability to build relationships, the ability to actively listen, um, stuff like that. So, so what, it, what is it, what is it about the coaching trainer relationship that motivates you the most and and when did you what, what was obviously sue sat there and, was, and said hey you know you could actually turn this into a career but what was it that clicked where you were like you know yeah this person says that it could be a career but also the, i i get all of this out of it and i could see it doing the rest of my life i i think the one thing when i realized this was valuable is because when i thought of fitness i thought of bodybuilding i thought of you know losing weight i thought of building muscle and looking at a certain aesthetic but sue taught me that if you help somebody lose weight, so if their goal is to lose 10 pounds and you help them lose 10 pounds, you will be their trainer until that point and then they'll be done with you. If yeah. you take away their pain, they will keep you forever. Mm -hmm. And so like when I realized that this could be a job that takes people's pain away and at first it started just purely physically, um, like, you know, you could treat it as almost like a rehab type program. Once I realized that I could do that and I started seeing it myself, like I still had major injuries when I started with Good Life and Sue helped me get through those and got to learn about it but I think the one thing that I learned that I could connect with people is to learn that everybody's in pain and no matter what that pain is if I can discover it and take it away 
then those people will want to work with me forever. And they may not be able to, it may be like, you know, a cost effective thing or anything else, but they, it'll be the hard decision for them to give it up. And it's what people deserve too. So many people are living silently in pain. And because of their like kind of internal fortitude and strength, we tend to forget that people are in pain and we kind of ignore the pain. So like with this job, I feel like it's my job to focus on them so intently that their internal world becomes my internal world for that hour and they feel felt. And I, I feel like most people don't feel felt very often. No. So like that, that's where this job I think can become very important is you give them an hour of your time and you help to try to alleviate that pain, whether or not you can kind of take away like the global pain of somebody, obviously mm -hmm. that's a huge goal. That's probably more of an internal project, but in that hour, you can help to make them feel better in so many countless ways. So obviously physically, but then also, also like mentally and spiritually, um, you have this opportunity compared to other jobs like purely physio, where it's not giving the attention usually, or when it's, um, you know, if you work into therapy, you don't get the physical side of it. It's, it's kind of like more one dimensional. This is such a, a three dimensional job where you can basically pick your passion and what you think is important for the person and tackle it. And it's, it's really individual up to you to see what you spot. So there's so many different ways, like we're not limited to anything in this job. Sometimes we're limited to how far we can go with something because of scope of practice, but we can really touch on every aspect of somebody's life and try to impact it to make them more of a complete whole person. And, and if I, if I could, in, and if I could encapsulate what we do specifically at, at our work at Synapse, if it, what we do there, that's what it is because we actually all, each of us care more. I think each of us care more about our clients than most people think we do. And then in addition to that, we care more than I think any other gym will ever care about their clients. Like, and it's because we're focused on, you know, you know, we, we understand that pain is debilitating. Every one of our trainers has been through pain or experienced exactly. some sort of recurring injury. So we all know that, but we all also understand that it's, you know, as much as it might just be your glutes firing, there might be something completely different going on. Right. And it's our job. We, the other thing I've noticed about us is that we love problem solving. Like we yeah. love problem solving and puzzles and games, you know, and it's, we're, we're, it's like being a monkey. You know, like we yeah. just, we love it and we love practicing it. But then there's the secondary part, you know, that's the monkey stuff. But then there's the secondary part of being a human or it's like, as a human, like we are empathetic and we're compassionate. Like we actually care, I think is the biggest thing. And yeah. one of the things that I've kind of I toiled with and, and, you know, struggled with back and forth over the last three or four months, since I've gotten more involved again, is I don't like the idea of training. So you, we can go about it one or two ways. And I, this is kind of out of left field, then we'll, we'll come back to it. But it's, it's how do we take this, this poor, uh, poor definition of what personal training is, right? You know, come in, sweat for an hour, you know, you're probably going to hurt tomorrow and the next day, but then you're going to come back in four or five days, and then we're going to do it again, and you're going to hurt again. And then how do we how do we redefine what personal training is into what we do? And if it's, you know, because you know, we're personal, we're personal trainers, but what we do isn't what people think personal training is. And I get that from every client that walks through that door. There isn't one client that walks through the door and says, oh, this is what my experience with personal training is. All of them are talking about how different this experience is than regular personal training. So I, what I'm going to ask you is if you, if you could call it something else, like move away from this, you know, poor definition of what we think personal training is and call it something else, what, what would you call it? 
the, the, the term that I've kind of coined more is movement therapy. So for me, movement is what we do. We train motion. Mm-hmm. We're not necessarily focused on individual body parts. We, we want to fix how you move. Because yeah. like if, if you strengthen a body part, but you can't use it properly, then your pain will come back. Mm-hmm. And so like that's the movement side. But then therapy, I think, is a very broad term that we can use because then we can encapsulate the rest of people's lives. So if it's nutritional that's causing your movement issues, if it's mental, spiritual, um, you know, whatever the cause is, that's where it, we can touch on it. So like the, that's the kind of the one that I like more than anything is movement therapy. And I, I think that's kind of what we do. The hard part when you hear therapy is you think kind of slow and sometimes kind of like simplistic and boring, and it can be extremely exciting and dynamic. So like th- there's a there's a kind of a preconceived notion of what therapy means that we kind of have to break that down as well. So it's hard to kind of really kind of check every box with the term, but th- that's the one that I think that we do more of. And I, I think that's where most of our benefit is too. So athletics is very, very important and very fun and exciting but most of the value that we bring is taking pain away through movement therapy so i i think that's kind of where our focus is in the general sense and it's interesting too because you said movement therapy is in like motion right and i think it's tony robbins who says that emotion like he break what he does a lot of the time is he takes words and he breaks them down and he says emotion is energy in motion yeah and it's the it's the most I mean, when you think about it that way and then stack it onto what you had just mentioned too, it's unbelievable because we think movement is this physical thing. You know, we're in this physical realm all the time as we're moving and we're squatting and we're lunging and um, we're doing push-ups and like anything that we would ever do in the gym. Um, but all it is, is we're putting energy in motion and then you stick those together and it's emotion, which we're going to talk about as we move into this. Cause I think we're, I think I asked you the question a few weeks back, but I'm going to ask it, ask it to you again, uh, coming up in a bit here. So You've worked, you've worked in health and wellness, I guess, for 10 years now, nine, 10 years yeah. um, or, or so. So what are some of the, what are some of the common barriers you find with most people? Like I, I noticed that I've noticed that working with, if I had a hundred people, um, this is the best example is um, sh- um, shoulder, I guess it'd be rotator cuff injuries. Okay. Like the rotator cuff injuries is a group of muscles. Okay. So, so everybody comes in and says, oh, I tore my rotator cuff. And then when I started to see there's just something about 55 to like 75 active 50 people who are age 55 to 75 and generally pretty active. The majority of them end up tearing their rotator cuffs if they haven't, if they haven't moved properly. And I think a lot of it happens from like rounded forward shoulders, then you're asking the shoulders to start to move and it just puts stress right on that rotator cuff area. And what I realized is that every person that I dealt with who had rotator cuff injuries were all rounded forward withdrawn forward, headward head posture. And it made me realize that, you know, the common barriers that we encounter in life aren't that different. So what are, what are some of the common ones that you've experienced with your clients, if you could uh, name two or three of them? Well, I, I think it always comes down to movement and, or like uh, posture and movement. So if you, you know, like from the time you're about five, you probably have pretty perfect posture. Like you've opened up, you've gone from that baby who's closed down to being completely open to the world. But as soon as you hit that five, six, seven, it's starting to come back down again. Yeah. So if we're not resisting that that downward force to, to flex inward, to go back into that fetal position, then we're gonna start seeing those issues of like impingements and like you're saying, rotator cuff injuries and back injuries and hip injuries and knee injuries. Mm-hmm. And so it, it'll always start there. I, I found like, like you're saying, it's 
usually kind of like when you get to 40 plus, you start seeing the lifestyle injuries come up. But I've been seeing that more and more. I, I've worked with a lot of high school students now who have backs of 60 year olds because, you know, they're stuck on their phones. They're always coming center and inwardly. Um, so like, that's kind of where I would start with. Like if you fix somebody's posture and then you add proper movement to that posture, mm-hmm. chances are you're never going to hurt yourself. It's like they, like they say, if your shoulder girdle is set in the right position, your rotator cuff is pretty much indestructible. Yeah. So if you have a rotator cuff injury, like if you, if you tear your supraspinatus, it's because you have shoulder girdle instability or there's not enough mobility. So it'll be one of those issues. So if, if you work on posture and movement, then everybody is almost identical. So you don't really need to know the underlying specific, you know, like uh, strength, weakness, tightness. If you can make the motion look good and their posture proper, and most of us are pretty universal in what that means. Some of us are limited in a sense of injuries that we might not be able to get into the exact posture that we need to. I have a very weak uh, uh, like uh, ankle mobility. So like, you know, if I squat or if I lunge, my ankle is going to inhibit how far I can move in that. And that makes it so my hips get a little bit tighter. And I, I you know, I get a little bit more into that lower cross syndrome tight hips. Um, so there's some things like that, that is going to be more individual, but the goal is still the same is to move into proper posture and then tr- turn that proper posture into proper movement and then do that movement enough. So most of us are just so getting into like immobility, especially this year, obviously, yeah. but it, the, the less you move, the more you're moving towards the grave. I like the idea that um, they always thought that gravity was the strongest force in nature, but it's actually not. It's levitation. So like when you think of anything living, it's levitating, essentially. It's pushing up against gravity. Yeah. There's nothing in the universe that pushes up against gravity. Everything gets sucked down. Yeah. So the more alive we are, the more we're pushing up, the more we're standing tall. So as we shrink down, we're losing our life force, essentially. So the more we can open up and get back into that proper position, then our energy, our strength, our healing ability will just naturally come back. We don't really need to think too specifically about that. We can think more globally. And it's so interesting that you, I mean, there are two things that you mentioned. And one of them, I like just to plug synapse in here is we, we released a, I made a postural video because I think it's the most important thing. And I started that video by saying, I don't know about you, but I've slept, I've, I've sat more in this past year than I had any, any year prior. And it's, I mean, it's a lifestyle thing. Cause I'm also seeing it with younger kids as well. Now where, you know, there aren't there, there, there's no reason that somebody who's 15 to 20 should be coming to me with low back pain in my eyes. Right. Yeah. Like we're just so strong structurally at that time that it shouldn't be happening. And then I start the same place where it's like, let's see your posture and everybody sits and they don't even really know where to start. The traditional form of posture is chin up. Right. But that's not even a chin thing. Like I can lift my head up all I want, but that's only going to be part of it. So just plugging it in, we we definitely dropped a video on that. And it's so important. And if we can figure out basic posture, things that we're doing every single day, then it'll translate into the rest of what we're doing. And the other thing that you mentioned that's really interesting, I never thought about it this way, but as a as a fetus, we're in the womb in kind of like this closed off, rounded, like comfortable position. And then at about four, four to six, like you had mentioned, all of a sudden we start to stand upright and we open up. But then, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, we start to kind of slowly close off again. And it's interesting without getting too deep into it, but the book that I'm reading right now is speaking to the ego development at about um, six, seven, eight. 
before that, we don't really have it. We're just trying to, we're just getting used to being alive at that point. We don't have necessarily the self-awareness, but the minute that the ego starts to develop and we realize that there is this, we aren't conscious of it at the time, but there is this kind of secondary development of this other, other person who we think we are, not who we actually are. Then we actually start to close off again. And it's really interesting because that's not, in my eyes, that's not a correlation. I'm sure, or sorry, that is a correlation. Like that's something that's for sure causal. Um, yeah. but I've never thought about it that way. It's really interesting when you brought that up. Well, especially if somebody goes through trauma, because like when you think of what somebody who is depressed looks like, yeah. you have a visual representation of that. That's a shoulder slouch. Yeah, and and so the funny thing is if, if you start creating that posture and you didn't have a reason for it, your brain will still trigger into a depressed state. So like it, it can go one way or the other, you know, like obviously you, what I've seen a lot, especially with younger women, is that they grow fast and they become insecure about their height so then they close off and then their shoulders are coming up uh younger guys it'll be you know a lot of times injuries but you know depression they want to shrink into the environment but yeah like if you open yourself up physically then it tends to open you up mentally as well mm -hmm. and so that same you know emotion is energy in motion right yeah. it's that it's that same thing that we we spoke about earlier so let's move, let's move into the program that you've developed because I mean, you and I, like I, like we, like I mentioned, we're definitely cut from the same cloth. We have a lot of the same beliefs um, and understandings. And I'm really excited to hear about the program you put together after 10 years of, of, of working with clients one-on-one. -on -one. I know you read a ton, so don't be afraid to, you know, mention any of the books, some of your, your favorite books that, um, that kind of have pushed you in the direction and, and how you've developed, how, how you developed this program. So what, what are you, what are you calling the program? Do you have a name for it yet? Uh, I call it Keystones of Health. And okay. that came from, okay. I was watching a documentary at the Banff Film Festival and it was talking about keystone animals. So in every ecosystem, there's one animal that tends to be the keystone animal for that ecosystem to keep it healthy. So if you went into a tidal pool, it might be a starfish. And if you throw away all those other starfish, you'll shrink from like 20 different varieties of species in that tidal pool to one or two. If you go into Yellow National Park, it's the wolves. Without the wolves, all the other vegetation dies. Uh, the deer population gets completely out of whack. And so like, I was watching this documentary and I was like, okay, if there's one fundamental element, and if we can think of ourselves as an ecosystem, obviously, because we have we bacteria and everything else in there, um, what would be the keystones of our health? What are the things that without it, we would be uh, sick, we would lose uh, our ability to heal ourselves, we would start getting disease, we would start breaking down. And I, I wanted to break it down to the most simple factors of that without being able to basically break them down any further. So if, if one of those factors could go into another one, um, then it wouldn't count. Like, you know, like we get so specific or we get so um, locked into one specific mindset of, you know, uh, am I eating the right thing? Should I go keto? Am I, should I do like kind of like high interval training instead of, you know, light workouts or should I do weight training or should I do CrossFit or should I do yoga? And those are just like one aspect that we can break down that we can take to one of the simplest or to its simplest form. And to me, the idea was to break down optimal health into its building blocks to try to uncover those essential aspects of a healthy life um, and then turn those into the most simple, easily accessible to everybody. So they have to be kind of free. Um, they have to be universal. And then without, if, if one of these building blocks is missing, so if we think about it as like a table, then you destabilize everything. Yeah. 
And so like, it's just basically the absolute most basic things that if you can check off all of these boxes, chances are you can alleviate 95% of health or like lifestyle diseases. And I would argue that is almost every disease. Yeah. Obviously it's hard to talk about um, alleviating diseases. That's not really our field. So I talk about it in the sense of adding health. So as we add health, then we kind of push disease off the other side. Yeah. So our, our, our focus, like I would say that our job is more healthcare than any other job. Yeah. Like, you know, like a hospital is disease care. Yeah. We're healthcare. So um, this program is trying to optimize health with its building blocks. Before we go into what the pillars are that you've created, there are a couple. Well, the first thing is, have you ever been to Yellowstone National Park yeah. before? Because I have too. And that is one of the most unbelievable national parks I've ever seen. And it is the coolest because it's exactly how you mentioned it. But they've done such a good job protecting that park. It was actually the first national park in the States. And it, it was the coolest from the from the arches when you go into the park, the fact that there's only one road in and one road out. They don't put garbage cans at the head of any trailhead. Like they, yeah. they it is the coolest park. So just mentioning that because it's I have such great memories from that park and it was such a cool experience. And that is one national park that is done right. If I can, oh, yeah. you know, that is the pinnacle. That is the best that it could possibly be done to integrate us into the national park. Now, the other thing that you had also mentioned too was um, treatment versus prevention. And I would, I would, I'd very much argue that what we do is is part of the healthcare system because we aren't a hospital or a physiotherapist or anything when you go to treatment, but we are largely a part of prevention. And yeah. you know, post, you know, post rehab too. We're we're a little bit of treatment, but our the stuff that we do is most important for prevention. So if somebody's in the healthcare system for treatment, they come to us. We're the ones responsible for not not allowing them to go back into the healthcare system. Or preventing yeah. them from going back into the healthcare system. So it's it's it's. I mean, you put it. You I couldn't put it better myself. You put it that you put it the right way, really. And then the other piece that you had also mentioned was um, genetic. I guess genetic predisposition. We chalk up a lot to the result of our genes. We chalk a lot of disease up to genetics. But what we don't understand is that in order there needs to be some sort of lifestyle behavior in order to flip that gene on. Because if yeah. the gene was on already, we would be born with the disease. So if we're not born with the disease, that means that we've done something. It's like a light switch. We've done something to flip that switch on. And that's a lifestyle thing that we can control. We can't change our genes. So we shouldn't focus on our genetic predisposition for it, right? Um, epigenetics, yeah. I guess, is what it is, right? You know, it's genetics yeah, exactly. is we have it, but epigenetics is how they manifest. So it's so important to understand. And I think it's a common misconception of a lot of people. For a lot of yeah, like my, my favorite geneticist, uh, Rudy, I think it's like uh, Rudy Tenz. Um, he says that like about 95 diseases are preventable and about 5% are genetic that are, are we're predisposed for. And you can think of anything from like Down syndrome to type 1 diabetes. Yeah. You are born with it. You can't control much about that. Yet that doesn't mean that you can't improve how you deal with it. So even if the disease is genetic and you can't avoid it, you can still strengthen your body in order to deal with it better and still live healthier. So no matter what the cause is, if it is a lifestyle disease or if it is a genetic disease, then our action towards that disease should be identical. So it really doesn't matter what the cause is. We want to look at the lifestyle. Yeah. It's essentially where I, where I look at it. Let's focus on what we can control, right? Can't control yeah. genes. You know, if it's in, if it's in the gene pool, then it's in the gene pool. Um, we need to control the things that we can control, which is lifestyle. 
Well, I, I like the quote from Hippocrates that it's more important to know the sort of person has what what sort of person has a disease than to know what sort of disease a person has. So, like, if we're looking to help somebody get healthy, mm -hmm. then we have to focus on the person and not the disease, and see what's going on in their lifestyle. And that's where I think that if we look into like somebody like Hippocrates, I think what we do lines more up to what he would consider to be medicine than what the medical field is today because he was focused on the individual and the causes of the disease where most of the world isn't focused on that they're just looking at the symptoms yeah. so that, that's kind of the difference that i see it's like that book so, that i had mentioned eastern eastern body western mind same thing eastern mindset is exactly what you're talking about you know western mind is you know figure out where the pain is and let's treat that but it's not the root cause of what's going on. If I have hip yeah. pain, you and I both know, like you had mentioned, you have a broken ankle. I also broke my ankle. I have limited, limited mobility. I know if I have hip pain, that problem is coming from the mobility in my ankle. It's not yeah. coming from my hip, right? My hip, yeah. my, my, I can't get enough um, dorsiflexion in my foot. It's exactly. just the way that it goes. So what are, yeah, what it are all comes down to like the, the etiology of it all. Like what is the cause, the root cause of our issues? What can we break it down to? And I, I feel like most people, no matter what their field is, including our own, don't mm -hmm. focus on root cause. So like that's where we need to develop programs to look at their entire life as a whole, from their emotional side to their lifestyle habits in order to develop a program based on them as a person. And developing a program that isn't a one size fits all model. And that's the biggest, the biggest gap in fitness nowadays that I see is it's this one person that's pushing like a six week uh, bodybuilder or booty builder program and they just blanket it to everybody right and it's just it's hard for me to it's hard for me to relate to because look maybe that'll work for 25 30 40 percent of the population right but you know that's not going to work for 100 percent of the population uh, and i don't think that one program can be developed uh, for the entire population but you can look at it as say you know these are keystone foundational pieces um, yeah. that will that are with everybody you know, these are things that you can do right now to just make it better. And then once you kind of get to that next chasm, um, then you can jump it sort of thing yeah. with, with some help. So what are, what yeah. are the, I know that you've come up with, I think five, five keystones. Yeah. What, what are the five keystones in, and let's talk a little bit about each of them. Well, I, I broke it down into those five because I, I found that I couldn't find any other factors that were going to influence lifestyle that wouldn't fit into these five. So the first one was our breathing. Our next one would be sleep, sleep habits. Um, then we would move into nutrition, uh, our movement, and then our mental state. So, I, and the way I kind of order them is in which is the most crucial for life. So if you stop breathing for a couple minutes, you die. If you mm -hmm. stop sleeping for a couple days, you die. If you stop eating and drinking for a couple weeks, you die. If you stop moving, you'll probably live a long time, but you'll start being miserable. And then with mental state, it will affect your health, but it won't necessarily kill you for most of the time. So that's where it might be the most important in the sense of living a good life, but it's not the most crucial to our subconscious body in the sense of just survival. So I put them kind of in survival uh, order more so than necessarily like just optimizing life and joy and everything like that. And it's interesting because that's a perfect example where it's like, how do you develop this one size fits all model. And I always go back to breathing because for example, mental state, if we're high anxiety or on, on edge all the time, uh, six deep breaths will completely reset your nervous system. But then what happened was when I started to watch people breathe, I realized that there, there were two things. Okay. Breathing, I guess, quote unquote, improperly, 
um, for, you know, our body to just be, do, be and do what it needs to do. And then the other one was a lack of awareness to their own breathing. They just didn't know how they were breathing. So I would just ask them questions and there was no awareness. And that was a piece of meditation that I never truly understood where they're like, focus on your breathing. I'm like, well, I'm breathing. Like, what, what, why does this matter? So I'd love to, what's, what's your take on breathing? Like, what's your, I get, let's just, you know, every, everything you know about breathing, because it's <laughs> something that we do all the time right? It's something that we can do multiple. It's interesting because it's something that is both conscious and unconscious. And that was something that, you know, your heart rate, for example, um, it's not something that you can consciously control, but your breathing, you can unconsciously do it. And then all of a sudden you can set intention with it and, and do it consciously as well. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Cause you know, I love it. And we all do it anyways. Yeah. Like breathing, it really is the only way to tie into our subconscious like thought patterns will do a little bit, but really like if you wanted to like necessarily tie into your parasympathetic nervous system and calm down, you can't say like digest faster. You can't just sit there and digest. You can't sit there and necessarily change your heart rate. You can't sit there and tell your kidneys to function better, but you can tie into your breathing. So breathing is a really way to tie into our vagus nerve. And that's kind of where I think the most important aspect of breathing is. So vagus nerve essentially is just the nerve that kind of like connects to most of our organs it's called vagus because of vagabonding and it means like wandering nerve so it, it like a lot of people will consider it to be how the the, the mind connects to the body like it's, it's through that nerve it's the longest nerve in our body and it literally goes yeah. everywhere i was listening to something a couple weeks ago that was talking about it it literally goes everywhere in our body and it's the most important and i didn't realize that actually breathing plays into the vagus nerve which is really really cool yeah. Yeah. Like uh, it's the easiest way to connect to it. So like vagus nerve is a nerve that is stimulated through the parasympathetic nervous system. So we have the sympathetic and we have the parasympathetic. So sympathetic is our fight, flight, freeze. So that's when we're stressed. That's when cortisol is flowing. That's when we're about to have to run away from a threat. And that's a, a state that we don't want to be in for more than a couple minutes at a time, but most of us live in chronically. And so it can be very damaging in that chronic state. So we want to try to get into a parasympathetic state and that is controlled by the vagus nerve. So when we breathe, like our, even if we think about our lungs, like the top half of our lungs have sympathetic nerve fibers, the bottom half have parasympathetic nerve fibers. So most of us are shallow breathers. If it's posture related, we can't get into those bottom parts of our lungs. Or if it's just the uh, mechanics of our breathing isn't uh, done right for one reason or another, um, we're not tying into the parasympathetic uh, uh, nervous system. So we're basically just in a chronic state of stress and anxiety, which most of us feel. So a lot of times we think that we're stressed out because of what's going on in our life. But what this shows is that we might feel more stress in our life because of the function of our breathing. And either way, if it's not, if it's actually like you do have a stressful job or you're going through a divorce or your kids are unhappy, things like that can be stressful but the way that we can help to alleviate the ill effects of that stress is to tie into our breathing and then if we look at the other keystones breathing will affect every single one of them so if we breathe poorly you can sleep eight hours and you will be exhausted if you breathe poorly you can have digestion issues if you breathe poorly you can have movement issues so basically like a lot of people think of you can't move functionally properly if you don't breathe properly because your diaphragm works as that stabilizer. Mm -hmm. So like, and then I, I, when it comes to our mental state, breathing can cause anxiety. If, if we just sit here and hyperventilate very fast, all of a sudden you'll yeah. feel anxious. 
So like breathing ties into every aspect of our life and it's the easiest thing to um, kind of connect to, to affect globally our entire body that we don't think about. Like you're saying, like we think that we breathe properly because we breathe, yeah. but most people aren't even close to it. And so like, that's where I, I would start with breathing because it's simple and it, the, the effects are profound. Do you think that when we talk about breathe, um, breath patterns, so pa like patterning our breathing, so when we talk about patterning our breathing, do you think that it's, um, I guess, more of a physical thing? Like if I have poor posture and I'm rounded forward, my diaphragm can't, can't work properly. It can't pull air in. So do you think that, you know, what it's kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Do you think the bad posture caused the poor breathing or do you think the poor breathing has caused the bad posture? The, the beauty of a system like this, or even a job that we do, is that it doesn't really matter. So if you connect, like, if, if you fix your posture, it should help your breathing. But if you fix your breathing, it should help your posture. So that's where we don't need to necessarily get to root cause, like all the time. We can just focus on here is what we need to do. And here's the actionable steps we can take. And no matter what the reason you like you have that got you into that state it will fix itself yeah. and so um it's, it's like you're saying bad posture will limit um how much diaphragm movement we have it'll it'll limit our heart rate uh, variability it'll, it'll limit our blood circulation it'll limit our how much oxygen we can actually offload out of our blood so a lot of times we're fully oxygenated but we can't offload it because we're like most people Overbreathe, so we're taking in too much oxygen. So basically, carbon dioxide is what dictates when we release the oxygen into our system. So if we just took like a blood oximeter test right now, most of us would be 98, 99% blood oxygen levels, no matter how we're breathing. Mm -hmm. But most of us have such an insensitivity or sensitivity to carbon dioxide that we can't breathe properly in the sense that we can't get the oxygen to actually do its job. So like, what our goal with this would be, we need to obviously fix where we're breathing from, make sure our diaphragm is moving properly. And that might be a, a, a posture issue. And then uh, try to lessen our breathing volume and our breathing rate. So we, we need to try to slow our breathing down while still getting a deep, while not taking in too much oxygen at the same time. So it can be very uncomfortable. Carbon dioxide can make people have panic attacks, mm -hmm. but it, it's funny that it's the sensitivity to carbon dioxide, not the carbon dioxide itself. So if we can train ourselves to be less sensitive to it, then we will become more efficient, but then we'll also become less anxious and less prone to those kind of problems. But it also, it's, I guess part of it is also a mind-body connection, right? Because it's just, um, I, I kind of look at it as like a trigger system, right? It's like if, we, if our if our blood ox or our carbon dioxide levels in our blood creeps too high, our body will start to react a certain way. Um, lethargy, you know, uh, yawning, feeling tired, um, like just the lack of oxygen. But a lot of the time we just discount it like, oh, I, I feel like crap. Like I don't feel well yeah. right now. But if we just understand that, oh, you know, have I been uh, breathing shallow in my chest? Like when was the last time I took a full breath? When was the last time I laid on my back? You know, just these like little things that we need to do if we just brought some awareness to it. Our body uses it as, as a marker and a tool to say, hey, you know, Aaron or hey, Benji, you need to breathe better, right? Or you need to be breathe uh, shallower or deeper or faster or slower. And I think that's on that mind body connection is missed a lot of the time. Yeah. And it's like you're saying too, is like we think that we need more oxygen in because we feel tired and we feel like we're yawning, but it, it's, it's such a, 
it, it's not intuitive to realize that the problem with that is that we have too much oxygen in. So mm -hmm. if we yawn, that's usually a sensitivity to carbon dioxide. So yawning is a sign that we're not breathing properly. We mm -hmm. shouldn't yawn, we shouldn't sigh all day. If you're doing those things, then uh, you're, you're trying to offload the carbon dioxide that you need in order to function properly. If you're chronically tired, um, one of the big signs with that is that you sleep with your mouth open. So basically the, the big thing with breathing also is we need to breathe through our nose and not through our mouth. Our mouth should very much only be for eating and talking and hopefully not talking too much. Um, but like, that's where um, the, it adds a little bit of restriction. It humidifies and warms the air. It uh, purifies it and makes sure that we get all the, the, the particles that we don't want in there out of there. And which is important this year, especially when we know that yeah. he's getting chronically sick, yeah. but it, it affects our sleep. So if you don't breathe properly, you cannot have a full night's sleep. So if you wake up and your mouth is dry, yeah. you probably will wake up exhausted. Yeah. And so like, it, it just ties into absolutely everything. And it's very, it, it's usually the opposite of what people think it is. People think like, if I have asthma, it's because I, can, I don't breathe properly. Whereas asthma is usually a sign of over breathing. So even though you feel like you're not breathing, and I, I grew up as an asthmatic, a way to help somebody through an asthma attack is to slow down their breathing, is to tell them to take in less oxygen, and then that will help them get through that panic attack. And so it, it's very counterintuitive, but it's, it's, it's super interesting and profound. So let's let's talk about sleep because sleep is the next keystone. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about sleep next. So you know, um, you somebody somebody starts breathing properly using your program. They end up start breathing. They end up starting to breathe properly. Uh, why did you choose sleep as the second one? Sleep I chose secondarily because it is the next most important thing just to life in general. So they used to do a, a Guinness Book of World Records to try to see who could stay awake the longest, but they discontinued it because it was so dangerous that people could literally die from trying to break that record. It, it is just the most important thing. Like if you were hungry or you were tired, mm -hmm. you will go to sleep. Like sleep is just the most important thing for our brain. And for the longest time, we don't know why we sleep. What is the importance of sleep? Um, and to a large extent, we, we kind of have like a growing field of knowledge on it, but we're, we're not too sure. We know that it affects literally every aspect of our life. So if you're sleep deprived chronically, you're way more likely to have type two diabetes. You're way too, more likely to have cardiovascular disease. You're way more likely to have cancers. So we, we know the importance of it by based on how, if we restrict it, the problems that come from it. But the way I think of sleep in, in a sense is it is more a reaction to other things we're doing. So it's not necessarily, you can't just choose to sleep better. Like you can choose your habits and your sleep hygiene. You know, don't look at your phone before sleep. Uh, read a book, do some meditation, and try to do the, the really healthy things that will help you uh, quiet your mind in order to fall asleep better. But if your nutrition's poor, you won't be able to sleep. Obviously, if you're taking too much caffeine, depending on the time of day, you won't be able to sleep. If your breathing's poor, you won't be able to sleep. If you're not moving enough, you won't be able to sleep. And then if you're anxious and you're restless and you're depressed, then you're going to ruminate all night and you won't be able to sleep for those reasons. So I, I, I do find that sleep is one that I don't necessarily... Um, focus on more so outside of the immediate habits around our sleep because it is such a challenging thing to necessarily just choose to do like we can choose to walk more but we can't necessarily choose to sleep more but if we change our habits like sleep is basically a symptom to me more so than the other ones it's not necessarily an action it's a symptom of our habits so if somebody says that they have sleep issues it, it starts to steer me towards other questions 
about yeah. their lifestyle yeah. in order to try to improve it. But it is something that we want to focus on because if they if we don't improve their sleep, then we'll we'll, we'll see chronic issues. I know that um, sleep deprivation is it mirrors the symptoms of ADHD perfectly. So when we look at young people and students, who I would say like the 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 biggest thing that I see in society right now is the attention deficit epidemic of needing yeah. medication in order to focus and, and chronic sleep deprivation mirrors ADHD symptoms perfectly. So if we can help somebody not need to take medication by changing their sleep patterns, then it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's, it's a no brainer. And it's interesting too, because I, I mean, sleep is, it's, I think it's one of those areas that we're, we're studying, we're studying right now as a society. We, we really, we really don't know. I don't, I, I don't think we, we know too much about sleep. One of the things that, um, other than the fact that, you know, we need it, like you had mentioned, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Aaron, because I, I haven't looked too much into the research. I, I, I learned uh, firsthand how important it was when I graduated from school that, you know, I was like, I can't believe how much better I feel when I actually get an eight hour sleep every night, when I fall asleep at a reasonable time, when I get up at a reasonable time, I have a consistent schedule. Uh, when I start eliminating some of the habits that you had mentioned, like my phone or uh, like, what are the, what's the kind of blue light that's going on in my room? Like how many different things do I have running? When I started kind of change, I, the biggest thing was I took my TV out of my room. When I did yeah. that, it just changed everything. And I was like, you know, I started putting so much more so much more investment into my sleep. But I, as I started to read a little bit more and research a little bit more, one of the things that it, it suggested was we're, we're not necessarily required to sleep for eight hours at a time. So what this guy had actually said was the idea is, is you want to go through one cycle. So you could actually go through a cycle in four hours, work, and then have another cycle for four hours. So he's like, the way we even think about sleep, like an afternoon nap, I can't remember what it is in, what is it called, a siesta? Or no, siesta is the part yeah. Where, where you have like the afternoon right. nap. Yeah. It was right. So, yeah. so when you, when you have a siesta, you actually have an afternoon nap. That's a cultural thing, but it's, it's there for a reason. It's not just because, um, you know, you ate a big meal at like noon and then you want to have a nap at one. I was actually reading something last week where studies actually show that there's a period between like one and three where we naturally just need a little bit of rest. But, yeah. you know, trying to accommodate a 30 minute or an hour nap is just, I mean, in our society, it's just not acceptable. Most of us are at work. It's like, go eat your lunch between 12 and one, and then go back to work between one and five. And it's just, it's yeah. so missed a lot of the time. And I just think the research is just so, um, I guess a lot of it is inconclusive. And I don't think it's, it's made it to everybody yet. I, I think it's growing a lot. I know that they studied a group of uh, men in Greece who do siestas and they call them the men who forget to die because they live so long. Yeah. And, and so there's really interesting research on that. And we, and we know that it's a way to um, like basically for our brain to heal itself and, and to uh, reorganize itself and to store memories and all those things happen in sleep. So if we're in our NREN sleep, um, like that's where there's going to be more storage of memories and doing all those things, you know, our REM cycle, we, we know the benefits of these um, different parts of sleep, just the idea of why we need certain amounts of sleep. The fact that every creature on the planet sleeps also shows the importance of sleep. Like it's just a universal thing. I would say like when it comes to like the, the different sleep cycles, um, there's definitely people like, you know, you hear about like Benjamin Franklin and people like that who had really crazy sleep cycles where they sleep two hours and then wake up and do stuff. I, I find that to be pretty challenging for most people. Like I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, recommend that. I find that um, like universally almost everybody except for a very 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 small percentage needs about seven to eight hours of sleep 
with ideally a nap midday. And the hard part is knowing when you should sleep. So like basically the only genetic component to that is when you're going to be tired. And they, they say there's like a cultural reason for that is if I fall asleep at eight o'clock at night and I wake up at say like four in the morning and you fall asleep at midnight and you wake up at eight in the morning, now there's more people awake for longer periods to keep everybody protected. So like if you're a night owl and you stay up late, you will not be able to change yourself into an early morning person you will just basically really hinder your own health and development by early uh, morning person if you're if that's just your natural sleep cycle then trying to stay up late will make you miserable the hard part with society is we've built it for early morning people yeah so the people who stay up to midnight they are at a huge disadvantage and chances are they will have more health issues they'll usually be a little bit less successful in work because first of all they're just exhausted so like I, I think there needs to be a cultural shift in order to let people fall into their natural cycles as much as possible obviously with shift workers or anything like that it would be a challenging thing to do but if we if we're talking about office workers or anything like that then letting people have more flexibility to their shifts I, I, I think could have a huge impact on just uh, universal health care so what are, what are some of your sleep practices? Uh, I, I focus mostly on sleep hygiene. Um, so like for that, it's going to be more, what environment do you set yourself up in? I make sure that my room is cold enough. I make sure that it's pitch black. I make sure that there's zero sound. So it, sometimes that might mean wearing a sleep mask. That might mean wearing earplugs. Mm-hmm. Um, the cooling is really important. So like one of the triggers for your brain or for your body to be ready for sleep is that your core temperature will start to cool down. So if you have like hot baths at night and sleep in a warm bed, you might have sleep issues. So like the cooling off effect is is a big one for me, especially have a cold shower at night or make sure that the air conditioning is on depending on the time of year is gonna be uh, crucial. And then like you're saying too, uh, what is the my light situation? If, if you have overhead lights at night, that very much like the way that the, the light angle comes into your eyeball will trigger what time of day you think it is. So if you have above light, uh, you think midday, that your brain just is triggered midday because that's the part of your eye that's absorbing that light. So, you know, moving the light lower, turning it down a little bit towards the hours, towards bed, limiting your blue light as much as you can, your phone, your iPad, your TV. And, you know, like doing some breathing practices can be hugely beneficial. But the number one thing I would say that has changed my sleep is taping my mouth when I sleep. So I'm an open mouth sleeper. I drool and I, I, I always wake up with like a completely dry mouth. And that's because I, I can't breathe properly. I had a stuffy nose. I'd always be clogged up, but taping my mouth shut, which is some, it's basically medical tape like this. You just put a, you just put a little, little, little tape over your mouth. And it's basically just like, a, it's, it's almost like a kinesiology tape where it's, it doesn't say. really change anything. It just is an awareness. Interesting. And yeah. So like learning to breathe through my nose when I sleep, it's made it. So when I sleep, even six hours, I feel more rested than when I used to sleep 10. And so like just that one little tiny change will make a complete overhaul of your entire lifestyle. So even if you don't get more sleep, you will get more restful sleep and you will feel better when you wake up. So to me, that's the most important thing. And, And most sleep doctors don't pay attention to breathing as a disorder that is causing their sleep problems. So I always think that that's the one area that they're missing. So like, yeah, like take your mouth. 
keep your mouth shut when you sleep and you will have a significantly better sleep. And it will help you to trigger your brain to be ready for sleep too. So as soon as I put that tape on, I'm exhausted and I fall asleep yeah. within 10 minutes. Ago. Interesting. That's really cool. That's such a good, that's, that's such a good suggestion. I mean, it's a little weird, but like the idea that I'm going to like tape my mouth, you know, before I go to sleep, but then the, the first, that's the first thing I thought about. I was like, I'm not going to be able to breathe because everybody thinks when you put tape over your mouth, that's, you know, you can't breathe. But then I was like, oh yeah, you have your nose to breathe. Like, it's just a matter of like the kinesthetic awareness, like you had mentioned, which is, which is super cool. It's the same as that kines tape, the rock tape or whatever, yeah. whatever it's called. And this tape comes off super easy too. So yeah. like I used to panic, but like 90, 90% of the time through the first probably month and a half, I'd wake up and the tape would be gone. So either mm -hmm. I open my mouth up during night or I rip it off subconsciously. So it comes off very easily, but you can also like train yourself to get used to it by putting it on like 30 minutes before you go to sleep and just getting comfortable breathing through your nose. But as you breathe through your nose and you don't use your mouth as much, then you will decongest yourself as well. So then breathing will become easier and easier and easier. And then it just becomes habitual over the course of a couple months. That's awesome. What's, what's the next keystone that we have in that, that model that you've created? Uh, that's when I go into nutrition. So I, I think of what we put in. And when I think of nutrition, I break it down into obviously the, the food that we eat and the liquids. So like for me, water, I would put before food, obviously. I think that most of us are chronically dehydrated. We don't even know what dehydration feels like. We, we, we usually like, we, we know what hunger pangs feel like. We know that feeling of being starving, but we don't know that indigestion or heartburn could be a thirst pang. We don't know that um, like the, 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 it could, could be causing arthritis. It could be causing our blood pressure issues. It could be causing, uh, mental issues. Like if we think of our brain dehydrating, that's when we get dementia and Alzheimer's. So you might be forgetful because you're dehydrated. So I would start with the simplest process to me when you're changing any of your lifestyle habits is learn to breathe less and learn to drink more. And if you do those two things only, you will overhaul your life. You might not fix every problem, but you will fix a ton of them. And so like, that's where I would start with, make sure you're getting enough water in, you know, for some, you know, for females, it might be three liters for men. It might be four. If you're active, it might jump up to four and a half or three and a half, but just wh whatever you can monitor, get something that's pretty yeah. easy to measure and just drink enough water and don't count anything else towards that water. So if you have tea, if you have coffee, if you have pop, if you have smoothies, or even in your nutrition, like if you're eating cucumbers and it's 90% water, just don't count it. Just no matter what, just plain water with absolutely zero in it, not even lemon in it. Just put nothing in it and keep track of your water that way. And then obviously if you're changing that, keep track of how much you're urinating and everything like that too, because you don't want to get too bloated. Mm -hmm. But the, the problem with a lot of medications is that they, uh, they're diuretics. They suck the water out of our system. Yeah. So yeah. in order to fix problems of dehydration, the medical move a lot of times is to add something that's dehydrating them more. Yeah. And so like, even if you're on those, like if you're on blood pressure medication, it might be working really well for you, but you can still add in the extra water to make sure that you're taking care of your body. Cause we're basically just an ocean within ourselves. So our, each of our cells sits in water, the inside of the cells. It, so like the ex, outside of our cells is basically salt water. It's just a big ocean. The inside of our, our cells is just, you know, like, clean fresh water everything works you know our, our, our lymphatic drainage is a liquid process our blood circulation is a liquid process so water is just the most crucial element of life if you think of fish they live in water yeah. where we, we put the ocean outside from around us and we put it inside of us so we need to make sure that that ocean is there um salt can play a huge factor in it so like the most crucial element of life is water and salt followed closely by potassium 
So like, you know, like making sure that you have enough salt in your diet, which most of us in the West don't have a problem with. But, you know, if you're, if you're having a hard time holding your water and you're going to the bathroom all the time, if your mouth's dry a lot, then you might just be low on salt. But then I move into nutrition. And for me, the most important thing with nutrition is that it needs to be antioxidant to fight the free radical damage from our breathing habits and from our exercise and from our lifestyle and our negative thoughts. And it needs to be anti-inflammatory. So basically, if you think of disease, it's the oxidization of the body. So we're basically rusting our body. So if we can fight oxidization, and that's another reason why oxygen is not is the miracle that people think it is, is because we are literally rusting ourselves. Oxygen is a poisonous gas in large quantities. That's why metal rusts. Carbon dioxide doesn't metal, rust metal. So it, it's the same thing. So like with our diets, that's where I focus more on whole food plant-based. So I, I try not to touch too much on what we shouldn't eat. Like if you love steak, I don't want to tell people not to eat it. Part of it's joy. And part of it, you can make an argument that there's health benefits to some meat or some dairy. I, like personally, I think that those arguments are a little bit tougher to make, but there's no problem with trying to make them. But we know for sure fruits and vegetables are good for us. We know for sure that seeds are good for us. We know for sure that nuts and legumes are good for us because we can measure who lives the longest and who lives the healthiest. And they always have the same thing in common. If you live in California, if you live in China, or if you live anywhere else in the world, if you live a long time, you're probably doing the same things. And that's eating mostly plant-based. So that, that's where I always think, like, I like the saying, like, if it's made and developed in a plant, don't eat it. If it's made of a plant, then eat it. And if you do those things, get in a variety of fruits and vegetables, then you don't really have to focus on what you need to remove because you have to eat so much of these fruits and vegetables. Like there is no limit to health. So basically the more you eat, the healthier you get. So it's the best diet plan for me ever because it's literally the only thing you have to focus on is getting in as much as possible and you yeah. will be stuffed and you will be tired and you'll be so full of from eating compared to any restrictive diet. That's just telling you limit your calories. Like it's such an unnecessary and sometimes damaging suggestion that a lot of nutritionists and fitness professionals make is just go low calorie. So, so before uh, that's, that's actually where I want to go is what you were just about to go into, but I wanted to, I wanted to throw a question your way uh, because I think there's a, there's always going to be a debate on, you know, I want to go low carb or no carb or plant-based or, you know, keto or paleo, like there's all these different diets and you and I, uh, we started the conversation by discussing, you know, how one program doesn't fit all. So what's your, I'd love to get your take on diet as you know, we're starting to talk about, you know, how do you, how do you decide what to eat? Like if somebody's like, I want to start eating better and they're like, Oh, but keto worked for my friend or, you know, a low carb worked for, for my friend or a paleo diet or a slow carb, like what's your take on diet? And if you had a suggestion for people who were looking to make a lifestyle change, what would it be? Well, first of all, I always try to think like logically, like if somebody said to me, like I went keto and I ate a lot of bacon and butter and I was healthier, I just can't logically make sense of that. But if somebody tells me like I ate more spinach and apples and I felt great, it just makes common sense. Like old wives tales are, you know, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, not a steak a day. Like it just, it just makes sense. But like, you know, like, but there are some people who just really see a, a lot of benefits from going more paleo and, and paleo can be good. It can be lined up with like, they, they can eat a lot of plants and they can do a lot of different things with that. It just basically means nothing processed, which mm -hmm. is a fantastic uh, suggestion. So I think that if your, if your habits are to eat a lot of processed food, a lot of sugary food, 
you know, like a lot of fast food, then a paleo, a paleo, a paleo or a keto can be hugely beneficial for you, even though I think that they're focused on the wrong areas of it, but they get rid of a lot of the problematic foods. So, you know, all good. But like the biggest suggestion for me, I, I think it's like, um, like there was one who said it the best and it's super simple. It's basically like um, eat mostly plants, not too much. That's it. Just, just do those things. Like, and it's, and it's, it's, like, it's so simple. Yeah, like I, I think we try to complicate something that's common sense. The hard part with nutrition is this is the one where people get more most stuck in their ways about. If you tell them to go vegetarian, they will resist you completely. Yeah. And so I think it's a bad suggestion. I just think when, whenever anybody asks me what my diet is, I, I go whole foods, plant-based. Yeah. So it's basically like very low ingredients. If I look at a label, well, hopefully most of my foods don't even have labels. They just are one ingredient yeah. and they're mostly plants. But like that being said, it's like if I want a steak or if I want a burger, I'll still eat it. Yeah. So there, there is no, there's no shame involved in it. I, I just find that uh, I think they, we, we focus mostly on the protein in North America. So like every single meal needs a, a steak, every single meal needs some chicken. Whereas like through all of human history, that wasn't an option. We weren't able to eat three things a day because they were just so hard to cultivate and to catch. And there was so much of us to feed. So a lot of people, like, even if you just look at your teeth and your digestive tract, you're built as a herbivore. So we're lucky enough to be smart enough to know how to cook food and know how to prepare food so that we can digest it and still get some health benefits out of it. But we're not built or designed necessarily to eat that way. But that being said, I know how challenging it is because I, like, I'm not necessarily a meat addict, but I'm a sugar addict. Like I, I love sugar so much. So I, I know it's challenging. So my, my focus has always been on trying to get more good in. I don't care about how much bad I do. Yeah. I care about how much good I do. So I, I just really focus all my attention on every single day doing stuff that I can like tie into my health. So if somebody asks me, why are you healthy? I can start listing things off. Yeah. And that, that's the only thing I, I always think of it as like a conveyor belt. So if I add more good stuff in the bad stuff will just slowly fall off and I don't have to pay attention to it all. Because if I try to resist something, if I say, I'm not going to eat brownies this week, I'm going to eat brownies every single day. Yeah. It's like, you know, the old saying, like whatever resists persists. Yeah. So I, I, I try not to resist anything, whatever, if my body's craving something, I'll eat it. But I, I just focus on getting as much whole food, plant-based, lots of beans, legumes, seeds, nuts, uh, the much variety as I can. And just as simply as possible. The nice thing with that is it's, significantly cheaper to eat that way yeah it's significantly less time to prepare that way and so your life gets a lot easier too mm -hmm. so it, it, it's universal that that's why so many poor countries can still have health or like health, have healthy populations is because rice and beans are super cheap but they're super healthy so like and, you know like a lot of people think that going healthier will cost them more but it's the exact opposite my, my grocery bill got cut in half yeah, I was I was the same way when I I think I was like 14, 15, kind of like that pinnacle, um, kind of that peak where I decided to change my life. And one of the biggest things was I looked, took a look at my bank statement every month and I was like, where is all my money going? And I realized that I was spending so much of my money on takeout food. And I also realized that I wasn't happy with my body either, my eating habits. And then I was also um, working against the work that I had been putting in, in the gym and just in my general life, just exercising. And I came back to my, my monthly statement for my bank account. I was like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? 
And then I started buying groceries more frequently and cooking more frequently. And I still eat out. I think that's the big thing is because like there's sometimes I'm yeah. like, I don't, I don't want to cook. Like, I don't want to do this. And also there's a mental piece of it where it's like, you know, sometimes I would, I'm not a huge sugar. I'm not a huge sugar addict. I do enjoy it. But like, for example, like a hamburger, like sometimes I just want a burger. Now here's the, the catch is I won't go to McDonald's for the burger. I'll eat a burger, but I won't go to like some fast food restaurant for it. I'll, I'll go and get like a real burger. And I think that's, you know, where's the balance and everybody gets to define their own, what that, what health is to them. Cause health is different to everybody. There's obviously some objective things that we can look at, but one of the things that you had, you had mentioned as well is that, you know, nutrition is something that we complicate, but nutrition is simple. It's just not easy. It's hard in our society, the way that we're structured to, to practice good nutrition, but good nutrition is actually simple. And this yeah. is a common trend in fitness in general and health and fitness is we we think it should be more attainable and more easily attainable. So we think that there's a quick fix to it, but there isn't. It's like, it's simple. Like the idea is very simple, but it's so simple that we actually overcomplicate it. And that's something that yeah. we miss all the time in health, fitness, nutrition, lifestyle. It's just that these things aren't complicated. They're very simple. We, we overcomplicate them. And that's what we're good at doing as humans. Well, that's why I always hated the nutritionist industry as a whole is because they tried to make it too complicated. Like yeah. I, I, I've done the nutrition training and everything. I just didn't like it because it, it is super simple. You show, you don't have to pay somebody a hundred dollars an hour to tell you what to eat. And most of the times it's so automatic. Like you can look at something and tell if it's food. Yeah. So if you look at an Oreo, it's not naturally food to somebody, but if you look at an apple, you will want to eat it. And I always think about that. Like um, people always talk about swimming in the ocean and sharks and stuff It's like sharks see you, they don't see food. They, they know what food is to them and we know what food is to us. So if I look at, you know, something very processed or if I look at, you know, a big chunk of, you know, raw meat, I don't necessarily think food. I don't think that looks appetizing. It's, it's when it's prepared and when it's presented to you in a way that triggers your mind. But like when it comes to like fruits and vegetables, they just, they look like food. It's just, it's easy. It's, 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 it's not complicated. So I always just go with what is intrinsically built into us. And I, I think, also, the next thing I'll look at is always what are the healthiest people around the world doing? Yeah. And like they can tie in, you know, the top 10 leading deaths in North America, you know, like cardiovascular disease and diabetes and, and, and everything in those ones um, to our, our nutrition habits. So like and most of North America is a meat sweet diet. So they focus on meat and they focus on sugar. And the places that don't do that, they live longer and they don't have disease. There's no reason why we should have cardiovascular disease that doesn't exist in the natural world. Like we're creating Western modern diseases through our nutritional habits. And if we just get rid of our modern diet, you get rid of our modern diseases. It's just, it's just logical. Before we move on, I have a, a, a chef, a head chef that I've been close with. We grew up together. And one of the biggest things that he ever said to me is he said, we eat with our eyes. And I was like, that's, that's true. It was like, we, we eat with our eyes. We know if something's going to taste good based on how it looks. And yeah. it's, it's, it's exactly in line. It's funny, you know, completely different fields, really, you know, somebody in a kitchen versus somebody in a gym, like they go hand in hand, but to hear him say that, and then to hear you say that, I think it's a great way to, I think, yeah, it's a great way to finish off and, and move into the, the next keystone that we have, which I think is movement. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And movement's a, a tough one to describe because I find it to be, the absolute simplest of all of them, which isn't to say that like what we do for a living, I, 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 I'm not talking about exactly like moving in order to heal or move or changing our movement patterns. To me, 
uh, strength training and what we do, that's what makes life enjoyable. That's what makes it bearable. What I'm talking about here is how much do we need to move in order to not get sick? So for me, that's going to be cardiovascular based. So weight training makes life enjoyable. That's what makes life um, worth living, but it doesn't necessarily make you live longer. That's where cardiovascular is going to be more important. So how much do we need to stand? Simple as that. Just stand up. Like when we're sitting down, our brain is wired to think that if you sit for too long, it's because you're either freezing to death or you're starving to death. And the only two ways that it knows or the only way it knows how to fix those two problems is to store fat and to put you into like a, basically just a, a, a shutdown, uh, like power save mode. So basically you won't heal yourself anymore. You'll be low energy and you'll be in a depressed state. And so like just getting up and going for like a walk to the bathroom every single hour, if you work at an office job, it triggers your brain into realizing that you're not about to die. And that's what movement's there for in that sense is it's just, just basically be, you are going to survive. And the next, like when you're sitting down all the time, your brain, it interprets its next meal, whatever it is, as the last meal you will ever eat. So we might look at it and be like, you just ate your best friend because they died. And then you, we need to store this as energy because we need to like make you survive as long as possible. Yeah. Whereas when you're moving, then your body will be like, okay, I can release this energy, which food is in order to do all the rebuilding projects in our body. Because we know that there's going to be more good stuff coming in because we're living in springtime. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the most important thing of movement is just don't sit for too long. If you sit eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours a day, your brain will start to shut down to protect you. Like fat, I always think of is, is like an overprotective mother where it's just basically like I'm your body's worried about you. So here's some extra fat and I'm going to give you a hug and I'm going to protect you. But if you can show your body that you are able to take care of yourself by doing responsible things, then that overprotective will just kind of release you. It will start letting go of that fat stores. It'll start not storing it as much. And then the next focus that we have to think about is our cardiovascular health. So when it comes to heart health, that's an interesting one because most people's hearts are fairly healthy. It's their cardiovascular system. So it's, it's, their, it's their veins. It's, it's everything else in that system that is unhealthy. It's, that's building a plaque. So your heart can probably keep beating for decades after we die. Like it is a strong muscle. It does not need a lot of focus. What we need to focus on is that circulation. And that's, that's where movement and doing, going even something simple. Like, so for me, the, the most simple thing we can do that is the bare necessity to guarantee that movement is not our issue for our health is just go for walks. Yeah. I would like to break that down into two walks today. If you go in the morning, the, the, the hormones that you release that will help you to rebuild your body last for about 12 hours. So go once in the morning, go once mid afternoon, and you have 24 hours of the hormones that you need in order to rebuild your, your body, those cytokines that, that are actually doing the, the rebuilding projects. Because like the, the, the hormones that destroy your body that break it down that are necessary so we don't get cancer cells and everything else they're released constantly no matter what we do if we do weight training they're released quicker mm -hmm. which is because then we can rebuild quicker but if we're not doing uh, our cardio work if we're not doing our weight training then we're not releasing the hormones that are rebuilding so we're just in a constant state of decay and not in rebuilding so a lot of what people consider to be aging is just decaying and decaying is completely completely reversible and avoidable yeah. aging is not but aging is a slow and respectable and 
a, a beautiful process that all of us see the benefits of. It's decay that really like robs us of life joy and life force. So that that's where with movement, um, if you want to feel like if you want to heal yourself from injuries, if you want to feel strong and energetic and beautiful, that's what our job is. That's where we really focus. But if you just want to make sure that you will live a long time and that you can keep your body in a relative state of health, whether or not you have aches and pains, um, then all you really need to do is walk, just, just walk enough. Yeah. And if, if we want to break it down to the most simple, simple, simple way of thinking about it, just walk. And it's interesting because when I, when I really started to question my relationship with, with fitness specifically, and the reason why I was wanting to be active and probably about two years ago, I was like, okay, what is health and what is my bare minimum of activity every single day? And the bare minimum is always at least one 45 minute walk a day. That's just the bare minimum. And the thing is, is I'm, you know, it actually didn't start as 45 minutes. It started as like, okay, I just need to go for a walk. Then it was like, you know, I was going for 20 minutes. Then once I got out there, I was like, yeah, I could go for 40. And then all of a sudden now it's just like a 45 minute walk a day. And the other thing that you mentioned, you know, movement, movement is pretty simple. Like it's not, it's not terribly complicated. It's something innate that we, we pick up at a really young age. You see that perfect baby going um, like ass to grass in a squat, for example. It's like they, we, we know it's correcting poor movement and correcting lifestyle patterns that have now manifested like over 50 years, that's where it's difficult a lot of the time. Um, yeah. And so that's where it's interesting where, you know, if we had to teach movement to like a four-year-old, it's like, yeah, this isn't that complicated. But when you're trying to teach, reteach movement after 50 years, if it's solidifying, that's when it becomes really complicated and also reversing patterns. And then you're dealing with injuries and all these other barriers that you had mentioned too. And the other, the other thing, I guess, with, with, um, movement that you had uh, mentioned with survival is that we we overlook our, our bodies all they want to do is survive like their goal is survival we think it's more complicated it's like the goal of the body is to survive so it's exactly like you had said if you don't feed it and then you feed it it's going to get the food and it's going to store it because it doesn't know when it gets food again or when you exercise and you're active it knows that it can be in a vulnerable state because it's being active and then it will use it and it's just it's very like i always go back to to movement and nutrition it's that same mentality where it's like they, it wants to survive so if it, if it wants to survive how can i make it feel more comfortable knowing that i will take care of it the way that it needs to be taken care of so that it, it will then be vulnerable enough to listen to me and you know yeah. then I can kind of direct it the right way and it's you you put it great you really did because it's I feel the same way yeah and, and when you think of like your body and those parts of your brain like they're very animalistic like you're saying yeah. like they're they're instinctual and they're uh -huh. very 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 powerful so like our brain is broken down into kind of like three sections where we have that reptilian brain that is that fight flight freeze where it has no connection to anything else except for just pure individualistic survival and then we have our limbic system, which is the middle part of our brain, which is our emotional brain, which is, some people will call the mammalian brain, where mammals can interact with each other. So that's how I pick up on your emotions and you pick up on mine and we heal each other and can be, feel safe in a group. And then we have our human brain, which is that neocortex, which is the newest one. And it's the most powerful. That's our mind. That's how our personalities are shaped. That's how we make decisions. But the thing with the, that, that last part of the brain is it's so much newer than the other parts of our brain that it can't control those other parts. So like one person thinks of the other two as like an elephant and our, our, like our neocortex is the rider of that elephant. So yeah. we're smart enough, we can guide that elephant and we can use it to our benefit. But if that elephant just decides to take off and it feels scared or if it feels any kind of like threat, a human can't stop an elephant. And so like our, our goal is to make sure that that part of our brain feels 
safe enough to be controlled by our our higher functions and that that's the challenge of it all is just making sure that that like you're saying is like do the the things that we know are necessary which is eat properly eat often enough sleep enough um and make sure that that elephant in our brain feels safe and feels like uh good enough in order to uh be controlled i guess by our human brain and i think that's a perfect segue into the the last keystone i think that you have which is mental state yeah and when i think of mental state i, I kind of call it the optimism of health and so what that means to me is what effect does our thinking patterns have on our health? And we don't necessarily tie those things together. There's a really good book called The Telomere Effect. And basically telomeres are the caps on our DNA. And as they shorten, like so as our DNA replicates itself, those telomere caps get shorter and shorter and shorter. And you can think of it almost like the, the cap on your shoelace. So it, it shrinks all, all the time. Um, but like what they've learned through that is that our thinking patterns affect our DNA health. So if we have those negative patterns of pessimism, if we ruminate on the past, if we're anxious, um, that will affect our genetic health. But it goes a two-way street. So we think, you know, all the negatives. But if we think optimistically, we can almost like create a, a placebo effect in our health. So we can not change anything of our lifestyle and just think ourselves healthier. So like, I always think of this as a, a good starting point, even if like you're a paraplegic or if you're in the hospital bed and you can't do anything else, you can't change any other aspect of your life. You can't go for a walk. You can't change your nutrition. Maybe you can't even change your breathing pattern, but you can always change your thought pattern and you can always like work on your thought pattern. Yeah. There was a cool example of uh, a group of uh, people who needed hip replacements. And what they did is they took half the group and they gave them the normal hip replacement and you know, sewed them up. And the other half of the group, they actually just cut them open, gave them stitches and didn't replace anything, but told them that they gave them a new hip. And afterwards, the results were identical for both groups. So by just thinking that they had the hip replacement, it trained their body into picturing a healthy future. Mm -hmm. And that was enough to heal them. There was another example of elderly people that they took into the woods and they put them in a cabin together and they were, they were friends when they were younger and they put everything in that cabin back to what it was like when they were teenagers. And they told them they were only allowed to listen to music. They were only allowed to talk about events and only allowed to pretend like they were still teenagers and all their health markers started to reverse back to when they were teenagers. So our, our brain really uh, reacts to what, or it anticipates what we expect. So if you say to yourself, Oh, you know, like senior moment when you forget something, what you're doing is you're telling your brain that as you age, you should start to forget things and your brain will just react to that. So if you tell yes. yourself as you age, you should have more pain as you age, you should get more overweight as you age, you should get more forgetful. Your brain's just going to react to that. But if you reverse that and you tell yourself as I'm aging, I'm getting healthier as I'm aging, I'm getting less pain as I'm aging, I'm getting happier. Your brain will react to that and it'll just, it'll just do what we tell it to do some people go all the way into quantum mechanics with it, where basically the entire world is just a sea of potentiality. And the more we can change our thoughts and become less of who we used to be, the more we can live in a future potential and create that world through our thought process. So that's where we can tie in um, a meditation pro, uh, a meditation practice. I, I like to combine the mental state with the breathing. So you can do a breathing meditation practice 
But then I also like to add in a, a, a body scan of sorts where I, I picture the different parts of my body and I make sure that I can connect to them with my mind. And then I picture them being as healthy as possible. So for me and you, it might be focusing on our ankles and I picture it moving properly. And I picture it, you know, getting more mobility and it, it makes a, an absolutely huge difference. This can be a little bit too holistic for a lot of people where they yeah, kind of see yeah. it as hippy dippy, but there's some really, really good science now. And especially when you get into the genetic epigenetic health of it, if we change our minds, we change our genetic expressions. Like yeah. you were saying, we, we, we turn on different light switches and yeah. we turn yeah. off and we, we down-regulate the bad stuff. So that's where mental state to me, you can live an entire life of being miserable. And that's why I kind of put it last. And also because I think people need to believe in it. If you don't believe in it, then you're not gonna get any benefits from it. It is very much a belief system, mm -hmm. which can be challenging for a lot of people. But if you can work this system in, this might be the most profound changes you make. You can overhaul your body in a matter of moments sometimes. So it, it has, I think, the most potential, but it's the hardest to get across to people. So that's why yeah. I went fifth. And because it is the hardest, what I, what I actually want to suggest is that anyone who listens to this or checks it out, uh, looks into a guy, his name is uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza. And Dr. Joe Dispenza has done a really good job of taking that kind of, it, really what he does is he uses science as a bridge um, into this, you know, like you called it hippy dippy. A lot of people call it um, pseudo science area. And what he's actually done is spent the last 15, 15, 20 years. He's been doing it for a long time, um, using science to prove that this pseudo science is not pseudo, that it's actually science. And he does an unbelievable job. It's and when you talked about um, the potentiality of our universe, it, he speaks a lot to that. And it is definitely something that's out there. So what I what I would suggest, I mean, what I suggest to most people is, you know, this is what I believe in. Okay, obviously, it's what you believe in as well. Um, yeah. but do the research yourself. If you don't believe me or you don't believe you, Aaron, do the research. And if you want to start with the research, start with somebody like Dr. Joe Dispenza. There's a book also that's uh, really good. It talks about neuroplasticity, which you had mentioned a little bit, which is the idea that our brain can change and heal itself. It really can. And this book, I think it was 12 chapters. And each chapter was a different story of somebody experiencing some neurodegenerative disease and then having the ability to, to heal themselves. The other one was also pain management, which is kind of what triggered it when you mentioned it, because pain management, we, we need to understand that the way our body works is we have uh, sensory and motor neurons. So there's a sensory neuron, say, in my, in my knee that says I have knee pain. Okay, but that neuron fires a signal up to my brain, and then my brain actually interprets it as pain. Okay, so then that means that we actually have this kind of junction in the middle where we can say, oh, this says that it's uncomfortable, but is it actually uncomfortable or is this just a chronic because neurons that fire together wire together. So if I have chronic Hep's knee law. pain, and what do you say? Hepp's law. Yeah. And the thing is, is if we have knee pain and we've been having chronic knee pain for years, even if that knee pain goes away in the knee, our brain will still register it as pain. And that's why it's really cool because it is this junction that says, okay, my knee is in pain up here. Is the pain actually there? Because then you can actually work back to the knee and say, you know, this, this neural connection that I've created is no longer, uh, no longer serves me and, and changing yeah. it. And I, like you said, helps law. So it's, it's really interesting. So like I, like I would suggest, especially when we get into mental state specifically, because it's kind of that one right now where, like you had mentioned, you have the, the primal uh, primal brain, then you have the limbic system, and then we have this neocortex system that's brand new. And it hasn't really caught up. It's the great example is that, you know, we have this elephant at the back of our head, and then we have, we're this human trying to control this elephant. And that's where we struggle with like things like anxiety and depression and 
you know, all these things that run rapid. EDHD is a perfect example that runs rapid, but we we need to understand this is the development of our system. It's the development development of humans as we as we continue to evolve and do everyone. And just like I said, I encourage everybody to do their research. And and if and if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Aaron, I'm sure you would love to chat with people about this. And I'm always an open book and would love to chat with people about it too. Yeah, and I know that we're developing a program that we can offer to people that will. Um, take them through their lifestyle and their personal history. And we can kind of like uh, personalize this to be the most effective for them. So like, if you do have breathing issues, we can fix that and help them yeah. with that. If they have a nutritional issue, whatever the main cause of your problems are, we can start looking into that. I know that we're going to look into developing different uh, guided meditations that people can, can use. And then they can start to look into like with some of this mental state that we've been talking about. And so like, yeah, like our, our goal with this, I, I think me and you especially is to make this available to the, the population at large and have it be as simple and accessible as possible to help people to completely uh, change their life. Absolutely. And that's the biggest thing is, is knowing that like that mentor is, I don't think you and I look at this as look, this is something that we do for a living. We make money at it. Okay. But this isn't the re that isn't the reason we do it. Money is the result of helping people. It's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And I, I'm, I know you feel it was the same way. I help people first and I make money because of it. And there's, there's, it's that mentor relationship. You know, I want to coach and mentor people so they can start leading the life that they want to live quicker and faster. I don't want to go through this like, it's like, okay, when I was 15, I'm here, then I plateau, then I'm here, then I plateau. I want to get people going from here and I want them to get them to go exponential and just shoot up and just having the opportunity to do that. I know I know you feel the same way, just being able to share and teach and allowing people to kind of finally reach their true potential is where where my passion lies and I think where yours, where yours, lies, uh, yours lies too. Yeah, and, and people put so much work into every aspect of their life that they deserve to have a life that they can enjoy. And it's the small things that they, that we do in our lifestyle that really is what's holding most of us back. So like there's all these lawyers and doctors and, and, and really hardworking people out there, construction workers, whatever you want to do, that are held back from enjoying their life based on what their body is doing. So it's, it's our job to get that uh, roadblock out of their way so that they can live to their true potential and have the life that they, that they deserve. And I think that's where we get passionate is helping people live that life that they've kind of always dreamed of but they couldn't quite find yeah no I, I love it man yeah it's it rings true with me and and I know I know you and I are on the same page and the, the best part is that we work for a company that is also on the same page and that is something where with my experience in health and health and wellness and health and fitness over the last man, I don't even know I think it's been like 10 years probably since I was in my first gym I, I know that those gyms are few and far between they really are so I'm super grateful for uh, having relationships with people like you and then working for a company like Synapse and working with a company like Synapse and Sue is a great example Chad uh, Sam March is another one who's really focused on mobility Michelle and uh, Tanya as well so it's it's quite amazing so let's 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 end it there on that but I do want to ask you more of a personal question too um, I know you read a ton you're an avid reader and I was reflecting on 2020 and I can make excuses. I'm not even going to make excuses other than the fact that I didn't read as much as I wanted to read in 2020. Um, but I know you are an avid reader. So is there a book, if you could suggest one book or, you know, gift one book to somebody, what's the book that you would suggest? You would uh, I think the book. most, I think the most important book that I've read this year is called uh, Breath by James Nestor. 
And it's all about breathing, essentially. And he does it from more of a journalistic point of view. So he just explores every different aspect and different style of breathing techniques. So I have my personal uh, Buteyko method that I think is the best. Other people have Wim Hof and different Tumo Tibetan breathing techniques and stuff. And he goes through a 10 year process of just exploring them all. And it's just like the most interesting, fantastic book about how we're developmentally changing. Our jaw shapes are all shifting, our noses, why we need braces. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really fascinating book. Even if you don't necessarily want to change anything right off the bat, it's just, it, it's mind blowing how much of an effect our breathing habits have on our life. And so like, because that is so unknown to so many different people, I think that's the place I would start. Everybody else knows that, you know, exercise and nutrition is good for them, but they don't realize the effect that breathing is having on their health. No. And then one more, one more question, just because I was, you said something and it jogged my brain. Um, you were, but you were probably about 14, I guess, 14 or 15 when you started making some real lifestyle changes and started leading and living a healthier life. If yeah. you could go back and tell that unhealthy um, unhealthy person, like just when you were on the cusp of being unhealthy to, to starting to change your lifestyle, if you could tell that person one thing at the beginning of that journey, what would you tell him? The suffering that he was going through at that time will be the most beneficial things for him later in life. So if you're struggling right now, if you're living through like, hating yourself to a large extent, which is probably a little bit mean to say, but it's what you probably feel in the moment. That is what will make you sympathetic and empathetic to other people. That is what will make it so you can live a shared experience with other people and connect to them. And that is what will teach you what's really important in life, which can be your, your self-love and your health. And so like all, I, I wouldn't change any of the injuries. I wouldn't change any of the, the insecurities for anything because it shaped me into a person who can empathize with anybody and see the potential in anybody as, as well. So the, the, the struggling and all of that is the benefit. It, it's where the most beautiful parts of life come from is yeah. built in that. You know, man, I want to, I want to end it there. Cause I, I feel the same way. And say, yeah. say, I, I wouldn't go back and change a thing, go through all the same stuff. I would only, I would only go back and tell myself, you know, just be a little bit more comfortable. It'll be okay. And yeah. I think that's one of the biggest things is I wouldn't change it for the world it makes me who I am today. I it's developed me into who I am today. And yeah, I'm super grateful for it. So Aaron, this was, this was awesome, man. I really appreciate you taking the time and I'm excited to listen to it again. I think there's a ton that people can learn from it. And I think that's it. That's you have anything else? Chat. Yeah, it was, it always is. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you haven't already, make sure to give the Daily Dose podcast a follow and come back next week, same time, same place, as we continue to share conversations with ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And as always, I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. Much love, everyone.